Before we uh, look at this passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, by the way, is where we'll be. And if you want to, you can go ahead and, and turn there now in the Bibles there, uh, either that you brought or in the chairs. Jeremiah 29, and our passage for today is going to be um, verses 4 through 7. I want to give a word about where we're going to go next week. And uh, this was all printed up in the bulletin, and so, uh, so I'll read some of it from the bulletin. Uh, I, I've been wrestling with, uh, with what to do for this next series. Genesis 12 through 50 obviously is a fairly long uh, reading. There's, there's a, a lot in it. If you've, um, if you've never read the Bible, but you've been around Sunday school, and you go and you read the book of Genesis, uh, you realize that so many of the, the lessons that are covered in many Sunday schools are right there in the first book. Um, and, and there's just a, a lot of material there. And we could spend weeks, months, even years studying uh, that portion of Genesis. I, uh, my plan, uh, however, is not to spend uh, years on it, but to cover in about um, 12, 13 weeks that stretch of the book. And here's Here's the, the, the thought. Um, for many of us, that book is, uh, the story is very familiar, uh, almost too familiar. For others of us, the, the story is, is very vague and we're just familiar with uh, various points. And for all of us, I want to take that story and tell it in a way that assumes that you all are hearing it for the first time. So, uh, so we will dedicate a, a significant portion of the service each week, and significant by significant, roughly about half the, the sermon time or about 15 minutes is, is my plan, to telling a portion of that story. And it's going to correspond with a portion that's in Genesis, but I'm not going to just read it uh, from, straight from it. Rather, we'll use a passage from it, a shorter passage as our sermon text or our homily text afterwards, and, and the beginning of it will be telling more of the context of the whole, uh, of the whole story. So, uh, so that telling, a telling of a story, if it's a good story, always contains some communicative purpose, some moral to the story, some lesson to be learned. And my hope is that it's not just the homily afterward, but it's this telling of the story itself that tells us something about who God is, who he made us to be, who he was calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be, and their families around them, and the growing number of people that were influenced by them, in a way that doesn't need uh, over-explanation after the story is told. So that's my, that's my goal. That's a, our approach to this. Um, the, the, the series is titled The God of Abraham, The God of Isaac, The God of Jacob. And I even have this nice little graphic that I made up for it that was supposed to be printed for you today that wasn't. But you'll see it uh, next week, and I'll send it out here this week as well. But uh, it, I, I'm excited to, to preach, uh, preach through this story and to see what, um, what lessons there are. Of course, as I tell the story... I'm not going to read Christ into the story as I tell the story itself. But in the homily, we'll afterward, again, also about 20-minute homily, um, even 15 at times, I'll, I'll draw the connections on how Christ has, uh, how this story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their families 
is always leading and pushing us right up to, uh, to the coming of Christ and the need for Christ and how he is the fulfillment of that uh, offspring or seed of Abraham that, uh, that brings salvation. So that's, uh, that's the plan there. Context. Context matters. Many of us are familiar with this letter to Jeremiah, that letter to the Israelites that Jeremiah writes that comes from God. That letter is in the context of a bigger story, but it includes things like verse 11 that probably most of you have written down for yourself at some point or have claimed for yourself and, and, uh, and held on to, rightly so. Verse 11, not part of our sermon passage, but let me read it first. The letter says, For I know, being a letter from God, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. This letter is being written in the context of the Israelite people, the, Israel, the people of Israel, even more specifically, the faithful few of that, or somewhat faithful few of that, who are more of the tribe of Judah, of the southern kingdom, who have finally been overrun by a foreign power. Their city destroyed, people taken captive, living in a foreign city, the superpower Babylon, and in that context, the people have many people who are claiming to be prophets, saying, don't get comfortable, we'll be going back soon. Surely God is going to save us and rescue us. And in that context, Jeremiah, prophet, has been saying for years, God is going to tear down these walls of the city by the hands of the Babylonian people. And you will be taken captive to Babylon. And Jeremiah remaining behind while many other leaders and much of the city and the people is taken to Babylon, writes this letter that he received from God to give them instructions on what they're to do. The chapter opens with these words. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. <clears throat> this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So they are in captivity. Skipping now down to verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is God's word. 
Will you pray with me? Father, would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to believe. These words that you have penned to the exiles in Babylon and show us how we should appropriate them to our own lives, to understand them and to apply them rightly. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Here's where we're going to go with this. I'm going to show you, tell you what some of those questions are. These questions are for sermon discussions, and uh, right now we don't have a community group going. We're looking to start one uh, later in September, probably uh, mid to late September, and the pieces are coming together for that, and in that context we'll have discussions, but I hope that some of you, when you go out after uh, church and, and have lunch together or are having an evening meal or even at bedtime, would use some of these discussion questions to prompt some discussion from the sermon and take, uh, take them a little bit further. I'll give you these just so you know where we're going to go today and what it is. The title of the sermon is A Vision for the Church, A Vision for the City. In this passage, we see something of a vision for the city, the city of Babylon, the city of uh, destruction, of evil, the contrasting city that the book of Revelation pits against that holy city of Jerusalem. And yet the surprising command that God gives is to seek the welfare of this city, not just to settle down, but to seek the welfare of the city. The first question I asked in the discussion questions was, what were the circumstances for this letter? Where were the people living? Under what conditions? What were their hopes? Second question, what, what was God telling them to do there? The third question, what should our vision be for the city in which God has placed us? The fourth question, what should our vision be for the church that God has given us? Fifth question, where do you see you, where would you like to be involved in building this city and in building this church? Vision is an interesting thing. Many pastors in recent years have quoted Proverb 29:18 that in the Old King James Version says, without vision, the people perish. People have written whole books on this to explain why their vision for the church is this great vision that people need to follow and that people need this vision in order to thrive or else they die. The problem with that is that if you look at a good translation of the Hebrew, vision is a particular type of vision there. It's not the pastor's vision. It's not this glorious plan or structure for the church. It's a prophetic vision. Or the words of the prophets, who are the mouthpiece of God, the words of God to his people. In other words, without God's word, without God's vision, the people perish. The people are without direction. The people are without purpose. Vision can be inspiring, but it also can be misleading. The context, furthermore, for this letter is naming by name two false prophets and one false priest 
who have put themselves in positions of authority and power by telling the people what they want to hear. Vision can be a very dangerous thing, especially when it rings exactly true in all of our ears. The words of the prophet were oftentimes full of hope and promise. The words that we read earlier from verse 11 ring in our ears true and needed for needed for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Those words were words that the people of Israel wanted and needed to hear, and the words that we want and need to hear. The words that I read earlier sound beautiful and sound like they're a glorious plan for us in this city Build homes, plant gardens, eat their produce, live in the homes. You'll be there for 70 years, Jeremiah says elsewhere. Marry, enjoy the life that God has given you with family. Enjoy the life he's given you with children and grandchildren. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And we say, that's great. We would love to do this for the city of San Diego. The problem is that we don't always remember the context in which this is written. It would be maybe a little bit like Russia coming to conquer the U.S. and taking its most influential citizens back to the city of Moscow in order to inculcate, assimilate the people just over time, gradually into the mindset of the Russian way of life. Even that is not a complete illustration, a very good illustration, because Moscow doesn't have the power that Babylon had relative to the United States today or relative to Jerusalem in that time. No one in that crowd had gone without losing a loved one, or probably many loved ones. Their homes being destroyed, their very city and the foundations of their life, including the temple and even the walls of Jerusalem, being torn down before their very eyes. God had removed his hedge of protection that had been miraculous for decades, if not centuries, around this great city. And now the people were being challenged to settle down. But God's plan, of course, as he's revealing this, God's plan, of course, was that while the city of Babylon was planning to assimilate the people of Jerusalem into their city and their culture to worship their gods, God was using the people of Jerusalem to influence this city for the city of Jerusalem. The rebuilding of Jerusalem, the establishment of a people, and you see in the history of this city, Babylon, both in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and even through to the overtaking of the Babylonian Empire by the Persian Empire, a turning of hearts to God and even the Persians refunding the rebuilding of the temple. <coughs> It's an amazing call and turn of, uh, turn of fates, if you will. It must have been completely overwhelming for the Israelites to hear this. 
We like the sound, many of us, settling down, having that influence over time, being present in the place and being with our neighbors, at least many of us do. It fits Mandy and my lifestyle and how we've set up our home. For some of us, the thought of being present in the city is a little bit of a fearful thing like maybe the thought of the Israelites going to Babylon. We're comfortable here in the church community, but we're very uncomfortable and out of sorts when we get in any kind of public setting outside of the church. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also something that God oftentimes pushes us out of our comfort zones. And there is this similarity from this passage to our circumstance that God always calls us to be a blessing to others around us. The call to Abraham that God gives is a call that's accompanied by a promise that those who bless him would be blessed by God. Those who curse him would be cursed by God. But God is calling Abraham in order to bless Abraham and his family and descendants in order to bless all the nations, all the people. And as a church, we are called to continue on as part of that covenant family adopted in most of us called children of God, part of the nation of Israel. The church, Apostle Paul says, is the Israel of God in Galatians. And we are fulfilling that command, that commission, when we seek to be a blessing to the place where God has sent us. As a church, we've spent the last couple of years building up some of the structures of the church. Some people, when they cast a vision for the city and their church, are so concerned with the city that they leave anemic the church itself. They change all of the structures of the church so that it doesn't resemble a church anymore. A friend of mine is uh, fond of using an illustration of an auto parts store. Say, when you go into an auto parts store, you go in with the purpose of finding a part to fix your car. You'd be surprised if you went into an auto parts store and you found a Starbucks had taken up shop and all the parts were gone. But they can order the parts for you from an online vendor if you want to. That's the way some people treat the church today. They make the church more like a coffee shop and say, well, if you need some teaching, you can find that online if you'd like to. Neglecting the purpose of the church of creating a fellowship of people and a family that supports one another. When you go into a church, the church should smell and look like a church. Not a coffee shop. We have coffee, we try to make good coffee, but that's not our first purpose as a church. We don't try to sell auto parts, but if you need to find one, I can, might be able to help you point in the right direction. But when you come into a church, it should be marked by the things that are the church. Now, some of us, many of us, bring some things into this from other places that aren't necessarily part of the church. 
friend of mine was telling me how much they like to go to uh, baseball games in places like Fenway Park, Wrigley Field, these old stadiums are more than 100 years old. And part of the feel of going into Fenway Park, it's beautiful if you've never been in baseball fans, great stadium to go to, wonderful history. And part of the feel of going into that park is that you smell things that have been there for a long time. Some of it's peanuts and hot dogs, some of it's beer, some of it is even just the smell of the bathrooms that have been there. And for so many of us, smell, of course, is this, this strong memory trigger. It's this nostalgic thing that even the scent of urine can trigger some kind of happy, fond memory <laughs> for us. And for some of us, we grew up in a church environment where even the smell of the urine in the church or the smell of some other thing that wasn't necessarily an important part of the church triggers for us a feeling like this is church. And that can be good at times, but at other times we need to discern what those things are that aren't necessarily part of the church but could be tied to your memories and what are the true marks of the church. The true functions of the church. Things like incense burning and certain candles burning that may come from certain traditions aren't necessarily always wrong in the church. But if those are the things that mark and most trigger your memory of what a church is, it may be misleading you to what God describes the church to really be. The smells and bells of the church have, uh, have experienced something of a renaissance in recent years with people wanting to connect to historical roots, go back to experience things that, that connect them with their ancestors and people who came before them. Many people in the 80s and 90s threw off tradition with the uh, thought that if we just get past the tradition and all those trappings that we could somehow have some new experience with God. But of course all of us are connected to our past. And we look not only to the past for a theological undergirding for understanding the scripture, for seeing how people have have, have interpreted the scriptures before and also how they've interpreted them wrongly at times and where interpreting wrongly has led the church in various things. Those are important things. But also that we don't stand isolated as individuals separated from those who have gone before us. We said this last week that we don't have to look back on those who have gone before us, parents, grandparents, and find our shortcomings as a direct result of some of their shortcomings. We can delight that the God who is sovereign over all things uses all of us in our imperfections to accomplish his purposes in his church. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is from the prophet Isaiah chapter 42, where he says, a bruised reed God will not crush. Bruised reed, God will not crush. The image, of course, is a picture of a pile of reeds that are used to weave together a basket, and a basket weaver would simply pick the best reeds, and if there was a bruised one or a damaged one, they would, they would throw it off. They would burn it immediately. It was a waste of time to use. 
But God uses this image to describe his church and each of us is like these reeds and what he's saying is God doesn't just take the ones that are bruised and cast them aside and burn them and only use the most valuable players, the, the, the perfect reeds, but rather God uses all of these reeds to weave together his basket, picture of his church, his congregation, but he knows where our weaknesses are and he weaves those reeds into the basket in such a way that doesn't put too much pressure on the bruised part, that is gentle with it, but that God is still using that reed for his purposes, that God in fact made that reed for use in his church. And he made other reeds in his church strong in other places to work together to gird those things up. Here's one of the central tenets of what we want to be as a church. We don't want to be a bunch of people who are the best reeds around. We want to be a church that is made up of reeds of all kinds of shapes and colors, gifts, talents, treasures, weaknesses. We want to be a church that when somebody comes to the door, it may take them a little bit, but they can find and see a place where they can contribute to the church, even if they have no money and seem or think they have no talents. That's the type of church that God has designed in his providence, that in this fellowship we would find true family that strengthens us and girds us up, where we all recognize that none of us is without a bruise on a reed, even if most of us, or many of us anyway, can hide those bruises pretty well where we all understand that we have to look to Christ to weave that basket together or else every one of us is a reed that is going to be thrown into the fire because we're useless in God's kingdom without Christ weaving us together with his precision and skill and talent. Where he makes us righteous and promises us a city where we will be without sin and where the city will be without sin and its effects but in the meantime, he allows our scars to remain and even some of our weaknesses. Where he never calls us to settle into our sin and say, well, someday God's going to get rid of that. But he always is moving us, spurring us on with words and deeds from one another and from his word to love and good deeds. Or in the language of David, following of his commandments and the loving of his commandments. And so as a church, we want to be that type of fellowship. That is the vision of the church where it looks and feels like a church. The marks of the church, by the way, I started down this road and then took that little tangent. The marks of the church is that God's word is faithfully preached. That the vision isn't just a reading of a passage and then the pastor saying what you want to hear, what he wants to say or giving some inspiring talk or seven habits of highly effective people or five steps to leading a happier life. But that what the teaching of the word 
tells us who God is and who we are in relationship to him and how that plays out in the real nitty-gritty of life. And that's what the story of redemption includes, and it's why it includes those chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis of some messed up people who God uses in their strengths and weaknesses to accomplish his purposes. And so we will never depart, Lord willing, from a preaching and a dependence and a centrality on God's word because in this is not just wisdom for living life. In this is found the story of who God is and who Christ is and how God has worked his redemption with real people in real places. And it gives us what we need to know to know how God works his redemption in and through us and builds us up as a church. The second thing that a church always has to have is prayer. The church does not exist as some type of intellectual circle or teaching apart from God, but is always connected in real life, spiritual connection with the living God and dependent on him. And so God has called us to pray to him. And that's why multiple times during our, during our worship service, we have prayers And generally those prayers are of different purposes. Our first prayer is a prayer of invocation. And we ask God to help us to worship him because apart from God, we can't worship him rightly. And the second prayer is a prayer of confession because when we come face to face with the living God, we're reminded how glorious he is. And we're also reminded of how our shortcomings keep us from him. It's it's a shameful thing And yet tied in together with that is this assurance, an assurance that comes before and after, that God doesn't condition his love on us based on those shortcomings or on our strengths. If we are in Christ, if we are connected to him. A prayer I prayed and added today that I think we'll add in here is another prayer, a prayer of praise. We've been looking at the four psalms of praise from 103 to 106 and how central praise is in shaping us as a person and how God delights when we recognize who he is and delights when we see how he's at work in our lives. And it's not just thanksgiving for what he's given us, but it's praise for just who he is. And then our last prayer is typically a prayer that is sometimes called our pastoral prayer or a prayer of thanksgiving and intercession, thanking God for what he's done for us and also asking God for what we need. Always with this this helpful teaching, Lord, give us what your will is and not what our will is. Give us what we need, which isn't always the same as what we want. The third thing that a church should always include is the right practice of the sacraments that Christ has given us. When we do the Lord's Supper on Sunday and when we have baptisms in the church, we are carrying out practices that Jesus himself gave to his disciples that had precursors in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament temple sacrifices and practices, but that are made more full when they are found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
sometimes people ask me, well, what are the differences of churches? And one of the significant differences in denominations across the world is in how they understand and practice the sacraments. The sacraments are on the one hand this great unifying principle that all who are in Christ's kingdom have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. According to the Gospel of Matthew, the instruction that Jesus gave his disciples, that in all places we celebrate this Lord's Supper perpetually, continually in the church to remind us of God's presence, that Jesus is present with us in that. And in that, we have this connection, a spiritual connection that's significant. Some people have taken, especially this, this became a popular thing again in the 80s, 70s and 80s, as, we were, as, as people were throwing off the structures of the church past and started practicing baptisms in home pools or sometimes at the beach and even at times in bathtubs. One of the books that I've read that's been influential on how we're structuring some of our community groups advocates community groups baptizing people in bathtubs in homes because it's a more intimate setting. But if we don't throw off the uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, no mixed metaphors there. We understand that the sacrament of baptism was given to connect people to a congregation or a new family as an initiation into this family that is the church body. And so while there may be a place for a home church to conduct a baptism in that home, the appropriate place for a church to baptize a person is in the fellowship of the people in the church. Because when we are baptized, we're baptized into this family, into this community. And so we don't do it in the coolest place or in the Jordan River because that's where Jesus baptized. We do it in the presence of the people that God has put us in fellowship with, in the presence of the church, and we make promises to one another that we will support and love one another in the building up of our faith and the practice of that. Now, I'm not going to say that all of those baptisms are illegitimate. It's kind of a tricky place, a tricky thing to define what is a legitimate baptism and what's not. And I've had to wrestle through this with different people in different places. And if you've been baptized in a place that you think, well, was that a legitimate baptism? It's a discussion that is, is a great discussion to have. And I'd be happy to have it with you or, or some other elders in the church. Today, Newman Lee is visiting from uh, our overseeing church in Escondido. He's an elder and he and his wife, Lena, uh, they, they would be glad to talk to you about that as well. But I bring up the subject in order to emphasize that this right practice of the sacraments is a mark of the church. If you go into a church and they aren't practicing the Lord's Supper, or instead of bread, they've replaced it with some other food that Jesus didn't command, or instead of wine, they're using, um, I don't know, pomegranate juice because people like pomegranate juice more. It should raise a flag in your mind to say, are they 
Are they making this up themselves or are they doing what Christ told the church to do and being what Christ told the church to be? A fourth mark that is oftentimes included in this is the right practice of discipline in the church. And discipline is never a fun subject to discuss and it's always a painful process when it's involved in the church. But discipline and understanding when certain people need to be corrected and what type of correction to offer following the example that Jesus gives that's in uh, the book of Matthew and, and escalating, go to the brother first and then bring somebody with you and then the elders of the church go with and then eventually it can lead to a, a, even a, a putting out of the church and excommunicating of a person in the church. Now oftentimes those things are, have been abused in church history and they are used to preserve power and to, um, uh, to, to accomplish purposes that are not Christ's. But on the other end of the spectrum, to completely neglect those things and just say to the church congregation, do whatever you want to, eventually you'll come around is a little bit like sending your three-year-old out to play on a busy street and just telling them to stay out of the street and not correcting them when they start to run out there. Those three or four, and there's some, some, some theological context that I could give you more on where those things come from, mark what a church is. Doesn't need to smell like auto parts in here, or incense burning, or motor oil or transmission fluid burning. But you need to see those things in the church for the church to be the church. I want to take things a step further, and I may even, uh, I'll tell you what, I, I'm going to do this sermon in two parts because um, I, I've taken a lot of time to describe what the church is here and the vision for the church. Why don't we take next week and we'll talk about what the vision for the city is. And I'll give you just a hint of what this is today, and then we'll discuss it more next week. Because a church never exists for its own benefit, just as an individual or a family never exists just to be its own isolated unit. A church always exists in the context of some other community. How we engage in that community is an important mark of who that church is. If we understand how the scriptures teach us to engage in the community around us, both from this passage and from many other passages, in the New Testament and Old Testament, you can see that God never calls us to be circling the wagons, never calls us to be on the defensive. In fact, Jesus tells Peter that the gates of hell will not stand against the advance of his gospel, showing us that we aren't the ones holed up in the city hoping the wall will hold, but rather it is hell itself and the forces of evil that are circling their wagons and hold up in the city. And that the advancing force of the, the gospel is going to overtake that. How we approach that in terms of optimistic and pessimistic hopes for the city and our neighbors and others to believe. What we engage in meaningfully, both uh, in civic organizations and, and as individuals with, with friends and neighbors and with those in need and in different places 
can vary from time to time and based on gifts, seasons of life. But if we are not leaning into the city and pressing in, we're not believing God's promises of who he's called us to be as a church. We used to have a banner in front of our church that said we were in the city for the city. Some people say it like this, they're city positive. That we look both with a realistic outlook in recognizing that we have only so much power and yet with an optimistic outlook that recognizes that God has all the power. We look at a multi-generational perspective to see that God oftentimes works not immediately, but over the course of many generations and lifetimes. People were exiled in Babylon for 70 years. 70 is significant because it's essentially a lifetime of a person. There were people who were born there, lived full lives, and never once saw the sunrise in the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes we're called to a faithful practice and believing in who God is for long durations. And we may not even think that we see the fruit of those labors. But God is at work in us. It's interesting that God doesn't really describe much of the synagogue culture or the worship of the people in Babylon when they're there. We don't want to interpret too much into the scriptures that's not written there. But we do know that it was important for the people to gather. We do see that over those 70 years, kings came to believe in the God who made, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others surely believed as well, even though we don't know a lot of details. The city was transformed, the city rose, the city fell. All the while, God was at work to shape his people and to influence people outside of that place. The same is true today. God is at work to shape his people in his church and to shape the city in which we live. Oftentimes, as we engage in the ministry in the city in which we live, it's an important part of God shaping us as people as well. The things are not isolated and alienated, but they work together for the good of those who love God and those whom God has called out of darkness into a wonderful light. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your church that you have described this church as a beautiful bride, as we read earlier from the book of Revelation. You have adorned her with a beauty, us with a beauty that is completely outside of ourselves. And yet it is part of who we are and we can claim it as our identity. Not from our own strivings, but as your good gift to us. Will you help us to take hold of that good gift and to be the church that you've called us to be? To not present ourselves in some kind of false light or say that we have some influence that we don't have or pretend to be somebody we're not. 
Help us to take full pleasure in who you've made us to be and to see how you use us, bruised reeds, for mighty works in your kingdom and in this city. We pray that uh, you would give us eyes to see these things this week. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name.